If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 1, I don't have my lapel on yet. Let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father, we are so grateful again for this wonderful day you've given to us. Father, to be able to really relax and gather together as believers, to be able to worship you, to worship you as we sing, as we pray, as we read the word, as we meditate on the word and study the word, as we fellowship together, spend time together. Father, we just thank you so much for that. Lord, it does so much good for our soul. And so, Father, we ask that as we continue our worship this evening, that, Lord, that you would continue to bless us as we open your word once again. We pray, Lord, as we begin to work our way through the book of Matthew, that, Father, again, that you will teach us, that you will instruct us, that, Father, we will grow in wisdom, that we will grow in holiness. So, Father, as always, we thank you. We know, Lord, you're present with us, and we're so grateful for that. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure all of you are thinking that there is nothing better than to be in a Baptist church where not only are you going to eat ice cream, but we get to read a genealogy. <laughs> We're going to read a bunch of names, and it's just going to be one exciting name after another. I know that sometimes uh, we have a hard time with that, uh, but if you think about it, you know, a genealogy can be really very important, and sometimes it can be exciting. You know, they have all these websites now where people are uh, checking things out, trying to find out uh, more about their ancestry. Uh, it's becoming helpful in knowing maybe uh, you might have some uh, predispositions to um, having certain kinds of difficulties in your health, and we're interested in that. Uh, we just have a curiosity as to uh, where um, maybe some of our ancestors are from or, or who they are, uh, especially if, if you have no idea what your family tree even looks like. Uh, there's interest there. Um, there is interest in... in, um, uh, in, in like, I guess you say, in our country, if an individual is running for president, uh, there is an interest in some of their genealogy. We, we want to make sure that they were born here, because that's the law. You know, if you're born somewhere else, you, you can't be the president here. And so, you know, there's, there's some interest in that. So a genealogy isn't as always as boring as it, it can appear to be. Um, uh, here, uh, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, genealogies, they can be kind of wearisome, uh, because it's... You know, it's, it's not our history in a sense. You know, it, it's the history of Israel. Uh, but this is a little different what we're reading here in Matthew because it is the genealogy of Jesus. And so it does tell us some things. And so uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We will spend all of tonight on this, but not a lot. It's not going to be like six parts on the genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to be doing that. Um, and I know many of you are very relieved to hear that. Um, but beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1, it begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Uh, I think it's Salmon. I, I, I couldn't find a Jewish pronunciation for that name. But anyway, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. 
David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot uh, Abihud, Abihud begot uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, uh, Achim, and Achim begot Elihud, Elihud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathen, Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So when it comes to the book of Matthew, Matthew did not sign his own name to his gospel. uh, But from the times of the early church, it has uniformly been attested that the apostle Matthew is the author of this book. As uh, you may know, Matthew Uh, refers to himself as being a tax collector before he encountered uh, Jesus and began to follow Jesus. We'll talk a little more about what a tax collector was and what that meant uh, when we get to that uh, as we move on through the text. Uh, But when Matthew describes himself that way, number one, that was a big admission because that was not a popular position to hold. Uh, He would have been looked down upon by just about everybody in the Jewish community. The purpose of Matthew's gospel, was to show that Jesus really was the messianic Davidic king. This this is a a gospel that's written primarily to a Jewish audience, and that was a very important question, uh, and it needed to be answered. Was Jesus truly the Messiah of the Davidic king? Of course, that would raise some questions, uh, especially among those who knew things about Jesus, because if he was the Messiah, where is the kingdom? Where is the world peace that the Messiah was supposed to inaugurate? And Matthew answers those questions. And so we will get to those answers when we get to them in the text as we move our way through the book of Matthew. Most people are aware that there are two genealogies of Jesus that are given in the Gospels. One is in Luke, and we have this one here in the book of Matthew. Uh, The one in Luke is traced through Mary, and the one we are looking at in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph. Many have stated that because Matthew was striving to prove the Messiahship of Jesus and to show that he had the right to sit on the throne of David, Matthew then traces out Joseph's line. This is is done to uh, point out that Joseph was of the royal line of the house of David, that he was the heir apparent to David's throne. Since Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph, he could claim the right to the throne. Many believe that Jesus received his Davidic descent through his mother, but his right to rule through his stepfather. However, even though that is in many, many commentaries, Matthew's point is really quite different. Because Matthew was proving in his genealogy that Jesus could not inherit the throne of David through Joseph. He was showing us that if this is the line of Jesus, Jesus could not be the Davidic king. And he could not be the Messiah. He immediately begins with a problem. Any Jewish reader reading this would have spotted it right away. 
because of their familiarity with the Old Testament uh, and with many of the main, most of the main characters and maybe some of the uh, minor characters in the Old Testament, they would have seen it right away. So he begins with the problem. Of course, he solves that problem, and we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But again, according to Matthew, Joseph was a direct descendant of David through Solomon, but also through Jeconiah. That is the name that trumps everything. That's the one that trips everyone up. That means that, again, Joseph could not have been the heir apparent to, J- to David's throne. So turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 22, and we'll see why that this uh, genealogy, if it is going to try to prove that um, uh, Jesus had the right to sit on the throne, it actually does the opposite of that and would disqualify him from sitting on the throne. So Jeremiah chapter 22, and I'll begin reading in verse 24. <clears throat> As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country, where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiakim, a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. So that passage is pretty clear, I think, about Jeconiah, or here he's called Jehoiakim. Uh, if you read verse 24 from the New American Standard, it reads this way, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. So Coniah is another name for the same individual. So, there, so this guy is called three things. He could be called Kaniah, he could be called Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim. Uh, the New King James reads, As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. So the curse on Kaniah is because of the kind of man that he was. Uh, again, he was the son of, Je- Je- of Jeho- man, good grief. Jehoiakim, saying these names too quickly. Uh, and he was the successor to the Davidic throne in 598 B.C. Je- Jehoiakim only ruled about three months in Jerusalem. So apparently Je- Jehoiakim precipitated the Babylonian aggression. So Je- Jehoiakim, or Kaniah, was suddenly faced with the invading Babylon, uh, Babylonians after his father's death. Now what happened was, is he realized the fertility of resisting this very overwhelming, powerful force of the Babylonian army. Um, they were so strong that the young king, he surrendered. And so consequently, what the Babylonians did was they stripped the temple and all the royal treasuries, uh, and they took Coniah and his queen mother as prisoners. Accompanying them into captivity were palace officials, executives, artisans, and the leading citizens of Jerusalem, whereas previously in 605 B.C., the Babylonians had merely taken hostages. This was a massive exile from the kingdom of Judah. So basically, Coniah, because he surrendered in this way, uh, he and his mom were kind of, they were basically taken care of. Uh, they had it pretty easy. 
uh, living with the Babylonians, even though they were prisoners. So a lot of skeptics like to point out that Jeconiah, or Kaniah, is included in Matthew's record of the lineage of Jesus, which is true. And they say that this proves that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because God said to Kaniah, count him as childless, and that none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So the skeptics then claim that this prohibits Jesus from being the Messiah because he's a descendant of Coniah, whom God clearly said would have no descendants on the throne. And they're partly right. As I already mentioned, they're, they're not wrong on that. Uh, clearly, Matthew was not including G- Joseph's genealogy to show that Jesus had a legal claim on the throne because he didn't. What Matthew is doing is he is presenting what some call the Jeconiah problem. So that's what he begins with. So he's writing to a Jewish audience. He wants to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And the first thing he does is he begins with a problem. He begins to point out with the one thing he knows that everyone's going to bring up to say, you know what? We don't have to listen to a word you say because he's already disqualified. Because he's of this line, he's already out. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what he did. He can't be the Messiah. He can't ever sit on the throne because of his lineage. And so that's what Matthew is bringing up. And again, he's doing it on purpose. But again, he's going to resolve that problem. And he's going to resolve that problem immediately because he gives us the account of something that you and I have heard almost all of our lives. And that is the virgin birth of Jesus. It actually would be the virgin conception of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus. That immediately lets us know that this problem is solved. Why? Because Jesus is not from the line of Joseph. He is, he's not uh, an individual who is saying he has the right to sit on the throne because of his father. That's not what he's doing. Because his father, as we know, is our father in heaven. He, it was a miraculous birth. And so there is no connection, there is no tie between Jesus and Jeconiah. This just doesn't exist. So Jesus was not the real son of Joseph. There's no biological connection. And so there is no Jeconiah problem. And that is reiterated because the text says in verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So he makes it clear here that Joseph was the husband of Mary. He's not the father um, of Jesus. And the word whom in the Greek language is feminine, which means it's putting the emphasis on the mother alone. So you could, you could read it this way. It would be kind of what we might call a commentary way uh, to read the verse, but it would read this way. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... He was born of her, Jesus, who is called the Christ. So it's just re-emphasizing that Jesus is connected biologically and only biologically to Mary. That's the emphasis that he's making. So once again, skeptics will do all they can to find flaws and errors concerning the person of Christ. That's been going on forever. Everyone, many individuals have tried to find a way to discredit who Jesus is. Some just don't even bother to try to come up with any real excuses. They just flat out deny it. They just say, yeah, he's not the son of God. They say, yeah, he was just this or he was just that. Uh, Those types of things. There are others who try to use the scripture uh, as a way to discredit him. And there are those still who try to use uh, this lineage here or this genealogy that's given to us in Matthew to discredit Jesus Christ. 
So again, as to the solution that we've mentioned, it solidifies that the virgin conception of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus, those are not unimportant or minor factors. They are necessary, foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And we've been facing that now for at least 50 years. It's not a unique thing, uh, but it's being emphasized in Western countries, um, this um, uh, denial of the virgin birth, where there are, again, Christian churches, at least in name, uh, that are stating that either it is unimportant or that you do not have to believe in that uh, to, to be a Christian. That is kind of a secondary issue. And I believe here from the get-go, because this is the solution that Matthew brings out to solve this immediate problem that might be raised by others, reveals that this is a foundational issue. This is no small thing. Uh, again, remember that we have said as Christians, we have said to the world at large that if you find an error in the Bible, a, a legitimate error, we throw it away. We have said if you find a contradiction, a true contradiction in the Bible, we will throw it away. Christians have said that if you can find inconsistencies in the Bible, we will throw it away. We've kind of thrown the mantle out there, and individuals have been just, you know, burning the midnight oil for centuries trying to do just that. And that has led to incredible uh, uh, scholarship on the part of many believers who have worked long and hard to discount the many different ideas and accusations that are brought up by the world. And once again, when it comes to the virgin birth, uh, what many have done is you have the one group that says that, well, that's impossible, which we, we know that that's why we would call it a miracle. They say it's impossible, therefore it didn't happen. But then also you have those, on the other hand, that I've already mentioned, who at least try to discount it and say, well, it would be like this. If I was one of those liberal kind of pastors, uh, and let's say that I was teaching that uh, believing in the virgin birth wasn't necessary, let's say that Robert's a member of my church, and he would say, he would say Brother Bob, I, look, I, I can't buy into what you're saying. I, I, I believe that it's, it's foundational. So what I would say is, well, Robert, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to oppose what you believe, and, and if you're going to hold on to that, that that's okay. Uh, um, but not everybody can swallow that, and yet they can still love Jesus. Not everybody can, is going to believe that, but, but they still believe that Jesus loves them and died for them. And I'm not going to sit here and tell them because of some, and I might say minor point, but I might not use the word minor because I'm talking to Robert. But what I'm going to try to do is smooth things over. What I'm basically saying is, well, that's okay for you to believe, but not everybody has to believe it. And, and, and I'm, taking, uh, I'm moving away from the authority of the word of God and I'm basically trying to settle it as being just a matter of opinion between the two of us. And what we need to do is go back to what does the scripture say? And the scripture lays it out as being a foundational issue. Uh, now, again, that does put us in a bad light with many individuals. We live in a time when our society as a whole uh, is striving purposely and intentionally to move away from absolute truth on many different levels. And that seeps into the church. That attitude seeps into the church. Uh, and so you have uh, many individuals, both believers and non-believers, who may attend church regularly, who are influenced by the world. And because we want to be inclusive, uh, because we want to be peaceful in all those different terms that people use, uh, individuals then will begin to say, well, you know, um, we just, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're going to reduce what the absolutes are. 
And, and people keep reducing it to where it's pretty much as long as you can say you love Jesus and we, we won't even define who Jesus is. And there are those who are in that camp. There are many, even in our town, that go to some churches here and that is what they're thinking when they gather together. They're not going to really define in stark terms who Jesus is. They're not going to really explain what does it mean to love Jesus. Because we would say that to love Jesus must include believing everything he said about himself. It would include that. It would include believing that because he said he was the son of God, you must believe that. Because he claimed to be God who could forgive sins, you must believe that. Part of loving God includes that in that. And what individuals or many individuals want to do is they want to separate that out and just say that as long as you have a feeling of affection for, uh, for God and a warm feeling of affection for people, then, then, then you have the spirit of Christ. And that's what's important. And so they, they water down Christianity. It's not even recognizable as being Christianity. Uh, and, that is, and, and believing those things or moving that direction is not going to lead to individuals having their sins forgiven and being adopted by God into the family because we are denying the truth of Scripture. So again, it's going to make us unpopular in certain circles. It may make us unpopular even with certain relatives that we have, uh, but that kind of goes with the territory. That doesn't mean that we have to be brash. It doesn't mean that we have to be obnoxious, but we have to be firm in what we believe. We can't keep throwing away foundational truths uh, and and somehow trying to minimize them uh, and still claim to be Christians. You know, the whole idea of everybody standing in a circle, holding hands and singing kumbaya, and we, and we all feel better, we feel spiritual, whatever that means, and we go our way. Uh, we, want to, we want to declare the truth of the word of God. Remember, that's, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was a lightning rod in that sense. Jesus did not hold back on proclaiming who he was. Uh, he proved who he was, he explained who he was, he taught the scripture very clearly, and as a result, there were those who hated him, uh, there were those who may have been indifferent for a while, but they ended up choosing sides, most definitely. And then there were those who loved him and believed everything that he said uh, and believed the miracles that they saw and, and believed in Christ, believed that he was the Christ. Remember that the word Christ means the anointed one. That's just the Greek way of saying he's the Messiah. So uh, if I ever refer to Jesus as the Messiah, that's the same way to say Jesus is the Christ, that we're saying he is the anointed one. He is the anointed one of God. And Jesus fulfills scripture at every turn. And that's the other thing that we've kind of thrown out there to the world. And that is, is that Jesus has fulfilled or will fulfill every single prophecy made about him. And so one of those, uh, we believe that the Old Testament clearly teaches, which I believe that it does, that he will be born of a virgin. And he was. And that's exactly what the scripture proves. And that's what it states. So again, the solution then that Matthew gives us which again is the virgin conception of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, uh, um, it, it solidifies the fact that this must be a foundational doctrine and we must believe this. It is a non-negotiable. When Jesus is, re- is referred to uh, in, in the book of Matthew as the son of David, uh, again, that's a title that emphasizes that Jesus is a king. Uh, that is emphasizing that, that he has the right to rule. That's what the emphasis, that's a title. That's a messianic title. Uh, that's used there. And we'll see that used a few times in the book of Matthew. There are times that he's referred to as the son of Abraham. That emphasizes again that he is Jewish. And that's what he was. Jesus was a Jew. Um, there are some people still who 
for whatever reason, doubt that. I, just, I don't, it's hard to fathom that. Uh, but there are those who do, I guess, just like there are also those who believe that Jesus didn't really exist. Uh, there are those who believe that he was just a, a, a figment, that the stories of Jesus was just a, was a composite, maybe, of a lot of different individuals, or just that he himself was just an allegory uh, of, you know, trying to communicate what God wants us to be, and so that he didn't really exist. So we need to recognize that there are those out there who buy into those things. Normally, uh, and I don't know what the percentage is, but it seems to be that normally individuals who buy into those kinds of arguments buy into them because they want to, not because it's been proven to them. They want those things to be true. Normally because they don't want to have to deal with the claims of Christ. They don't want to have to deal with the gospel. They don't, they don't want to listen to it. Uh, they don't want to have to think about it. And so what often happens, and we live in a time where this happens a great deal, uh, people will again go to the internet and they search for facts they like. They search for facts they're going to agree with. They're not really facts, but that's how, they, that's how we would describe it. They're looking for things they're going to already agree with. And so there are people that are out there already that are looking uh, for ways to uh, discount who Christ is. And so some of these things, you can come across websites where individuals will be proclaiming some of the things I've already told you if it's brand new stuff. Uh, or maybe proclaiming to you that um, uh, this has been hidden from you. I think I've told you before, there's, uh, he's not the only one who does this, but there's a, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Er, is it Ehrman? There's no T in it. It's Ehrman, yeah. Uh, he graduated from Moody Baba College, which is a reputable Baba College. And then he went to Wheaton College, which is a fairly reputable Christian college. Uh, but he ended up denying the faith. And he goes around. He does teach at a university. because He goes around and gives lectures at many different universities. And he uses really a ploy to undermine the faith um, of believers or those at least maybe who are raised in church. And the ploy that he uses is, it's, it's, this, is, this is how I would describe it. I'm sure he would not describe it this way, but I would say he's playing a part. And what he, what, the way that he approaches it, he, he begins his lectures, or at least somewhere in the beginning, he'll, he'll tell, tell the, the group that's there, you know, there's a lot of things that your pastor didn't tell you. And people are like, oh, that kind of piques our interest. There's some things the church has kept hidden from you. Oh. And then he'll add this phrase. And I believe many of the same things until I began to read the Bible for myself. Those are loaded statements. That there's so much uh, in them that, that is being presumed uh, as far as what he's saying and communicating. But there are those who are listening who they buy into that. They're drawn to that for whatever the reason. And so they start thinking, well, wait a minute, my church has lied to me, they've, they've kept information from me, and because many of them haven't read the Bible for themselves, they think, well, I need, I need to read the Bible for myself. And of course, what's implied in that is you read the Bible for yourself and you interpret the Bible. What do you think it means? Um, and of course, you can make it seem a lot of things. So he'll go through that kind of a scenario, and then he might do this. He might say, did you know that in the genealogy of Jesus... It proves in that genealogy that Jesus is not the son of David or that he's, he doesn't have the right to sit on, sit on the throne. And everybody would be looking around like, what? And then he would read that and then flip to Jeremiah and say, you see, Jesus is not the, is not the rightful king. And there are people there, they don't know what to think of that. They haven't heard before, but they're reading the words for themselves. And next thing you know... They begin to question everything, and that's what he's trying to do. That's another definition or example of someone who's being pernicious. 
Um, and it's just it's, it's horrible. So we have to be prepared for these things and recognize that we're always going to be up against those types of things. And because of the advent of the Internet and all the various things that are kind of associated with that, uh, this kind of information is not only readily available. When I say information, it doesn't mean it's true. But this information or these ideas are readily available. Uh, and so it's coming at us so fast and so quickly, uh, it's very difficult to keep up. Uh, thank, we, we should be thankful that there are many other websites where individuals have taken the time, scholars have taken the time to, to take these claims or these false accusations seriously, and there are answers to all these things. There's answers to all of them. Uh, and so there's no truth or validity to anything that that man or others like him are saying. But their ploy is very, very successful, um, and, and they're able to undermine the faith uh, of, of some individuals. So again, Abraham, being called the son of Abraham, emphasized that he was a Jew. Um, and uh, so again, concerning the issue as to whether or not Jesus was recognized to be a descendant of David, the Gospels, first of all, never record that that was ever disputed. And that, that, so that's important. So we have, remember, he, he is of the Davidic line all through Mary, and that's, that's his bloodline as well. Um, but when it comes to the claims about him being a king or being uh, uh, hailed as a king, you don't find any record anywhere of anyone bringing up this idea that, uh, no, we have, because they had access to his genealogy. All you had to do was go down to the temple. Before the temple was destroyed, the Jews were meticulous in keeping records uh, as far as your genealogy, because many times what you could or could not do in life was determined by your genealogy. Uh, and so uh, anyone, and I guarantee you they did, could go down to the temple and look up the genealogical records and say, ah, this man is disqualified, and here's why. That's not brought up anywhere. And, and you can not only do you find this in the, in, uh, don't find this in the Bible, um, and some might say, well, of course you won't find the Bible, because the Bible is trying to prove that he is. Uh, but you look at all the other writings that came out around that time during the early church when individuals were trying to say things uh, negative about Jesus, and that still doesn't come up. Uh, there you can find in Josephus and some of the other uh, ancient books or older books uh, where Jesus was, was accused of being demon-possessed, but you don't find anyone proclaiming that because of his genealogy, he's just disqualified. It's not there. It's not ever disputed. Uh, Paul doesn't bring it up. Peter doesn't bring it up. Uh, as, I, as I already mentioned, the genealogy of Jesus was readily available. So again, in this sense, all the facts are on our side. But remember that facts never exclude the need for faith. It is not a faith in Christ while ignoring the facts. It is not a faith in Christ while holding on to doubtful facts. Facts do lend credibility and substance to our faith. It is never a blind faith or, again, a faith that ignores facts. So, it is, so we do believe the gospel and we do believe in who Jesus was and the facts support that. But it never eliminates the need for faith. It reveals that our faith is not blind, but it's not... You know, it's not only the facts. We are believing what's being told us about Jesus because it goes, you know, much more beyond just his genealogy and those things. So we want to make sure that we remember that, that we don't have a blind faith uh, in Christ or in anything really that the Bible says. One more thing that's important about this genealogy is Matthew does break with Jewish tradition. And many of you have probably heard this before uh, because he mentions women and that just didn't happen. You didn't put the names of women in genealogies. Uh, and here Matthew breaks with tradition, and he names four women. There's Tamar, or Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is um, the one who's referred to as just her, um, when you look at verse 6. 
So it was contrary to Jewish practice to name women in genealogy. The Talmud states that a mother's family is not to be called a family. But Matthew does have a reason for naming these four women. And I do think it's important for us um, to uh, understand at least two main reasons why he names these women. Number one, these women were all Gentiles. So part of that at least would be this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of all people. Yes, he is King of the Jews. He's also King of the world. Yes, he came to his own. But he also came to the world. And so all four of these women are, are Gentiles. And that's uh, more than just interesting, I believe. Uh, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were Gentiles. It was probably true of Bathsheba. We can't say dogmatically. But because her first husband, uh, Uriah, was a Hittite, uh, many believe that she would not have been Jewish. Um, Matthew makes hints at something he makes clear later, and that is this, that while the main purpose of the coming of Jesus was to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Gentiles would also benefit from his coming. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, some individuals have wrongly stated, this really isn't stated too much anymore, but this, you can still find this in, in some writings, some misguided individuals, uh, when they talk about Jesus and, and what Jesus, as he presented himself to the Jews, and the Jews rejected him, and they crucified him, people say that, well, Jesus presented himself to the Jews, and, and the nation of Israel rejected him, and so then, G- so then God then decided he would save the Gentiles. That is not how that worked out. Right, he came with the intention of saving all of us from the very beginning. Israel's rejection of him was built into the whole, God already knew all those things. And it's stated again in the Old Testament that, that this was going to happen. Uh, that he was, again, going to be the Savior of all men. So we just, once again, need to remind ourselves of that truth and this idea that because Israel rejected Jesus, that this is a last-minute switch in plans, that God, you know, thankfully was able to come up with a plan B, uh, then all wasn't lost. That's, that's not what took place. But I do think the next point is really important. Um, and, and I got this from uh, uh, when I, this is, gosh, this is probably 30 years ago. Um, I sat through the lectures given by Arnold Frutenbaum, on the life of Christ. And he talks about this, and this is really important. He says this, Three of these women were guilty of sexual sins. Bathsheba was guilty of adultery. Rahab was guilty of prostitution. Tamar was guilty of incest. Now, if you read your New Testament, there's a lot of warnings about sexual sin. There's something about sexual sin that it's, it's prominent uh, you can fall into sexual sin so easily. Uh, it seems to uh, easily enslave so many people. It is a hideous thing. We, we know uh, how horrific sexual crimes can be. We know that we have a worldwide problem when it comes to uh, the sex trafficking trade. Um, my personal opinion is we're really not, as, as a government, as a country... And all the other countries in the world are, are, I think, included in this. They're not really trying to do anything to clean this up. Because I think there's a way to do it. I mean, yes, you would have to invoke the army, and it would involve killing lots of people. Um, but uh, it, can be, it can be taken care of. Uh, I'm not advocating murder. I'm advocating justice. Um, maybe some justice without a trial. But uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, this can be dealt with, and it's not. And it's, it's a problem. And you read about some of the arrests. I won't go into the details. Some of the arrests that were made in America um, over the past two months about some women who were basically renting out their daughters 
um, and the ages of their daughters. It's just, it's just hard to even imagine that, that that's going on. And it goes on on a regular basis. But not only that, we also, there's a stigma with those who get involved, whether it's in prostitution, those who are involved in incest, whether they were maybe victimized or maybe they're, for whatever reason, are kind of involved in this, this kind of arena. You know, there's a stigma that goes with it. Uh, and I think here that um, he's making it clear that people that are involved in the worst kinds of things can be redeemed, period. They can be redeemed, and they, and they are redeemed. And we see these individuals in the genealogy of Jesus himself. Um, it, it all is not lost. There is no one who is not savable. There is no one who is not redeemable. Um, there is, uh, in every single person, uh, is the image of God marred greatly? Absolutely. But the image of God is there. And Christ suffered for all kinds of sin, even the most hideous things uh, that people perpetrate against others. He died for that. That's it, a, a very difficult thing to swallow. Even non-believers, when they think about certain types of crimes or certain types of acts, have a very hard time with our concept of forgiveness. It is true that many of them misunderstand it, some, but there are some who actually have a pretty good handle on it, and they hate it. They don't like it, not at all. Um, and that's because they don't really understand that Christ was truly punished for the sins that we've committed. No sin will ever go unpunished. Your sins will never go unpunished. They have been punished in Christ. Uh, and, and we are to not only think about that, I think we are to imagine that. Uh, particularly when we gather together for the Lord's table. Uh, it should be a very sobering thing uh, for each one of us. And should also then uh, cause us to have a, a very uh, warm, uh, an ongoing warm sense of, of affection for the lost. And for those who are hurting very deeply, because even those who victimize others in the worst ways, many of them, not all of them, but many of them that victimize other people, they've been in one way or another victimized themselves. It doesn't excuse anything they're doing or saying. So we're not, we're not trying to minimize anything that anybody does. But, man, making a victim out of someone usually means that they're going to make victims out of others if they survive in one way or another. It may not be as bad, it may be worse, but... It just perpetuates itself. And the only way to break that cycle is, is through Christ. It's the only way. Uh, and it's the only way that is just as well as loving. So again, these women, three of these women are guilty of sexual sins, adultery, prostitution, and incest. Uh, again, Matthew only hints at a point that he later clarifies, and that is this. The purpose of the Messiah's coming was to save sinners. That's why he came. And that's what we celebrate. And so that's why we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. He's, he's saving sinners, and then when that number is reached, whatever that number is that only he knows, uh, he will return. And we will live with him for all of eternity in a glory that can't even be imagined. Um, I don't know if there will be ice cream in heaven, but if there's not, you won't miss it. That's how good heaven will be. Um, so it's pretty astounding uh, to think about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much, Lord. Even though, Lord, we have read through a bunch of names, and, and even though we do recognize some of them, because a lot of them are major players in the Old Testament, there are some we don't know a lot about. And, and Father, it's interesting that, that the first thing Matthew does is begin with a problem, because his desire is really, I, I believe, with great uh, uh, strength and great firmness, desires to prove and to show the, the miraculousness of salvation and this incredible plan 
that you set in motion uh, through the birth of Christ, through the sending of Christ into this despicable world to save sinners. And Father, we are the recipients of this marvelous plan that is laid out here for us in the book of Matthew. So Father, we first of all just thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to enable us to really grasp the greatness of the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf and how it is an incredible manifestation of perfect love for us, of which we are undeserving in every way. But we are so grateful. So, Father, we ask again that you would continue to burn these truths deep into our hearts, into our minds. We pray that it would deeply affect us, deeply affect what we think about, deeply affect the way we think, the way we think about others, the way that we respond to the world. Father, we desire to be heavily influenced by your spirit and by your word. That, Father, we may bring glory to your name. That we may point people to who you are. So, Father, we thank you. And we do ask these things tonight in Christ's name. Amen.